Hello everyone, it's March 21st, 2023. This week we're talking about Stoke Space and their amazing reusable aerospike heat shieldless rocket upper stage. If this works, it might just be the coolest thing to come out of commercial space flight ever, in my opinion at least. So let's talk about this amazing thing and more and lift off. Welcome to episode 401 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. About in one month's time, we should be seeing a Starship launch. <laughs> so that'll be cool if it if it happens. Oh, we got a new update? Well, just I think a tweet or something oh. that they're aiming for the last week in the last week of April. Mm. I think they're just awaiting approval from the FAA and that's it. I think the actual launch vehicle itself is ready to go. That'll be fun to talk about, but I'm I'm just mentioning it now because there's not much else to talk about at the top of the show. <laughs> so not sure. I was gonna say I uh, of course I'm struggling to find it now, but I had seen some people, uh, some pictures of close-ups of Starship, and some of the tiles look a little not flush to their adjacent tiles, mm. and I don't know if that's just because they're not getting haven't gotten around to i guess smooth them all out or or not but um so i assume that they're aware of that and that they'll right. fix it well before some launch, of them they got they've got them taped in so yeah you yeah you'd think mm-hmm. it really seems like that if there's going to be one difficult aspect of this vehicle it's just the tiles there's so many and so many opportunities for one to fall off it seems and this one this this test flight this is going to be orbital and them trying to are they going to try to catch the booster it's been so long. Are they going to just drop it in the? No, I think it's just going to ditch ocean. like off the coast of Hawaii or something. It's just it's just going to yeah. fall into the ocean. Okay. Well, it, the booster I don't think is making it to Hawaii, but Starship is. Right. That's what I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what oh, I'm Starship. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they're going to try to land the booster. I think the the booster is going in the Gulf of Mexico or whatever. I don't know how far out it gets. It's crazy to think that just out of out of the blue, suddenly this random town <laughs> uh, this random spot on the gulf of mexico is going to be okay here's where we're launching the biggest rocket the world's <laughs> ever seen you know yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It just kind of comes roaring out of left field over the last uh you know decade but i don't know i, I need to see it actually fly and make it back in one piece because I'm, right. I'm still i'm not i'm still not 100 convinced that even the concept is going to end up proving well out. hey if we want to talk about a concept that mm. is uh, pushing the limits, I think we can go ahead and transition. <laughs> yeah. So that new concept is Stoke Space, and uh, they're now preparing for a hopper landing trial. And we had mentioned Stoke Space several times. They have this cool concept about using uh, basically something like an aerospike to bring back a second stage of a launch vehicle Mm. which is such an innovative idea it's one of those things that i never just never even crossed my mind um but then again i don't know why it would yeah and i think it's really interesting that the concept of an aerospike started with the with nasa's like linear aerospike which had one long combustion chamber on either side and uh as we've as a species as we've iterated on this idea we've kind of settled into the concept that um, smaller discrete combustion chambers is really the way to go. And circular makes a lot more sense for the type of rockets that we're building today. Maybe the linear aerospike will make sense if we go back to a flying wing, like a delta wing concept. Um, but like our idea, like our, the way that we conceptualize this kind of weird idea has settled into a consensus and now you know, multiple companies have tried 
that that concept, that conceptualization. And it's killed every single company who's touched it, uh, unfortunately. And so hopefully, um, we're actually going to see Stoke space do it and do it well. And I think one of the things that's really, um, on their side is that they're, they're not using it in the normal way that you, that you would, uh, think of and because they're using, uh, uh, an aerospike on their upper stage, they're getting to use more of the, the benefits of an aerospike. And I think squeezing a little bit of extra juice is going to uh, be good for, uh, their odds of success. And if anyone's unfamiliar with Stoke Space uh, and you're screaming now, like, why on earth would you have an aerospike on the second stage? Who cares? That's mm-hmm. that's the whole fun part <laughs> about it, making it uh, so that it can survive reentry. But we'll talk about that later. Yeah. So, right. We, we talked about them, uh, I don't know, about a year ago, six months ago. And at that point, they had just uh, constructed their like engine. So it's it's really like a bunch of engines all together. Um, but it's like this giant like thrust ring and they had it on a, uh, on a test platform, uh, and had, they had fired it and there were some videos and some photos and it was pretty cool. Well, since then they have not only constructed, but they've done a wet dress rehearsal with their hopper, um, which is very reminiscent of star hopper, starship hopper and grasshopper from SpaceX. Uh, it's, uh, this s- smaller scale, a lower uh, expectation test platform. And in this case, it looks very much like Starhopper, except it's got canted sides. Um, but it's it's roughly the same scale. It's it's smaller than Starhopper, I'm pretty sure, but it's it's roughly the same scale. And uh, they have uh, built and installed uh, a heat shield. Oh, they they actually call this Hopper uh, their second formal build, which is kind of fast. <laughs> crazy uh but yeah so they built and installed their uh their heat shield um and part of like the speed of all this is in, shown in uh tim dodd's tour uh that he did uh they're using like automotive tie rods for some of the structural components and the whole thing is made out of stainless steel they specifically note that it's good for manufacturability um which is like totally true right like if you do uh, high tech materials like composites or whatever, like a lot of the issues that people have run into just comes down to how hard it is to design and build this stuff. Um, so if you actually want to fly something, picking a more common material, uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, but that the fact that it's common means that it's got a lower price and it's got better availability, um, which they also cite as being like a nice thing, even though their primary, uh, decision was based off of the manufacturability. I think I think these are all good conclusions to hear from somebody. And and sorry, before we go any further, does the rocket have a name? I think I think it's I think they call it rocket. On their website, the the tab is called rocket, and all the images, the file name is like rocket full rocket small. So that's so it's probably just unnamed at this point. Unnamed or they're uh, ripping or they're off going Astra. With Astra, yeah, <laughs> R- ripping off a generic word. Uh, okay, so right, we talked about their engine. It's probably worth uh, mentioning again. Uh, it's got thirty thrust chambers all around in a circle, and one turbo pump. Um, and the turbo pump, oddly enough, is offset to one side. I, I don't know what decisions, uh, what what different factors led to that decision, but it's kind of interesting. Um, also, because 
you know, it's a bunch of thrust chambers. You can throttle them individually. So they don't need a gimbal, um, which frees up a pretty good amount of mass, both for the uh, the gimbal itself for the the actuators like the the pneumatic or hydraulic actuators the uh, pneumatic or hydraulic pumps and all the plumbing and everything and they they kind of need every bit of mass that they can get because there are a bunch of compromises that come along with this design um, sort of like uh, the fact that they're using stainless steel that takes up a lot of mass compared to you know pie in the sky uh, carbon fiber composites right um yeah. or or any any lighter material so it, it seems like they're being fairly prodigious prodigious i think is the right word where they're uh, ha- making mass savings in their design concept and then spending those mass savings uh, yeah. elsewhere and th- there's another major cost saving the, or a uh, mass uh, expenditure that we'll talk about. But but yeah, so so I thought another thing that was pretty cool was that uh, the way that they throttle them to do their uh, differential thrusting on their uh, uh, descent is, or on, I guess, ascent as well, is that they have pintle injectors, which is the kind of classic, you know, you get like a little mushroom kind of cap in the middle of a tube and you can kind of push out the mushroom to let some fuel and propellant whatever through there. And then you can kind of close the mushroom by pulling it back against the... Uh, the opening of the cylinder. That's the best way I can use to describe a pintle <laughs> injector. I don't know if you guys got a better one, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a hose. It's a sprayer attachment for your backyard hose. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. Like there, there are pintle sprayers where you like, you squeeze it harder and it makes a wider fan. Yeah, you squeeze it less got... and it makes a, you know, so, uh, they're, they're going to try to reuse their second stage. Right. And so like the major issue there is thermal control. Basically, bringing something back through the atmosphere is really hard. Bringing something back through the atmosphere that doesn't leave bits of itself in space is just, it's such a tough problem. And so what's nice about this general architecture that they've picked, the aerospike, is you've got a big old space in the middle of the bottom of your rocket that is, in this case, used up by a heat shield rather than being used up by the nozzle uh, of your rocket, which is, you know, not terribly good um, at soaking up heat uh, on the scale and type of, of reentry heat. So with an aerospike, you know, the, the traditional full aerospike, you've got um, a cone that tapers down to a point with a truncated aerospike. You've got this plug that goes, you know, halfway or less. It has a nice flat bottom. Um, and in this case, they're using a highly truncated aerospike. Um, they basically have a big uh, dome, um, and it's it's made of stainless panels welded together. It, it looks very um, Starship, like SpaceX Starship prototypey. But with this big dome, they get all of the aerodynamic things they need for um, an aerospike rocket. But then they also have a large surface area that can soak up, uh, that can soak up heat. Um, and because it's a, a dome, like it's, it's a lot of space that it takes up. They also have lots of room to put all the other things that you'd normally have at the bottom of an upper stage, the computers, the pressurant tanks, and, you know, all this stuff gets dumped in there. Well, the heat shield is going to, you know, by nature, <laughs> it's going to get hot. And so what they've decided to do is have an actively cooled heat shield instead of having like an ablative heat shield. And 
um, their active cooling system uh, could have a refrigerant flowing through it. Um, and then I guess radiators or something uh, or a, a heat store. But instead, they have decided to flow their fuel through the heat shield as part of their expander cycle engine. So they flow their uh, their fuel through the heat shield to cool it down and heat up the, uh, the fuel. Then they um, pump the fuel through the nozzle of their uh, of all their little engines, um, which heats it up even more. And then it gets dumped into the engine and burned. Um, some of it uh, gets tapped off and is used to spin up the turbo pump. So there's this really great moment when in, in Tim Dodd's video, um, he and Andy Lapsa, the the founder, the the CEO, are sitting there looking at uh, I think the the engine, and they're talking about um, this actively cooled heat shield. And Tim goes, "Okay, well, what are you using to push uh, this cold fuel through the heat shield?" And Andy like gets a sly smile on his face, and he goes, "Well, it's the it's the same mechanism that pushes fuel through the engine, which." like confirms that like this is all one integrated system it's part of the expander cycle and so what's really interesting is that if you are using uh fuel to cool your heat shield that heat shield needs to be cooled for a much longer period of time than the engine needs to run so as they're going through re-entry they're actually like running their engine in quotes um running the engine to flow fuel through the heat shield and unfortunately that means that there's some fuel loss as they're using their fuel as, as a coolant. But what's really cool is because it's uh, in line with the, uh, with the engine um, as the heat shield starts to warm up and heats up the fuel, the fuel expands and starts to flow through like the normal engine. So it flows through the turbo pump and it spins the turbo pump pulling more fuel in. So it's sort of this self-reinforcing, uh, maybe even a self-regulating system where they, they don't need to apply additional power to get their engine running because it's they're just going to be soaking up heat from the atmosphere. Yeah, I, I think you even said exactly that, which is kind of how yep. an expander cycle works. It's yeah. self-regulating. Well, and, and Tim also makes a big point of pointing out that this is capturing heat from the re-entry, which... Otherwise, you do everything you can to get rid of and reflect. But in this case, it's fine if you soak in that heat because we can put it to use um, pumping coolant. The, like, the problem is that you wind up pumping coolant, which is also the exact liquid that you need to land the rocket. Um, so you, you have fuel losses for that. You also, when you're running the rocket with a hot heat shield, either hot because it's been soaking up heat as an aerospike or hot because it's been soaking up heat as a reentry heat shield, you're going to wind up with very hot fuel. And we just talked about uh, Astra encountering issues because their fuel was hotter than expected. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully Stoke Space has done the math uh, and like actually said, okay, we can design this in a way where we're not going to just boil off all of our propellant and, and lose that uh, ability to soak up heat. Like hopefully they're not going to just burn through things because they're soaking up too much heat. Hopefully they're not going to burn through too much fuel or dump too much fuel overboard because their heat shield's getting hot. Um, but they, they seem very confident. They have uh, figured out how to to solve this engineering puzzle, they balanced everything. And if the pros outweigh the cons, this is a very clever way of doing things. And I, I think it's actually pretty exciting. And so I guess the idea for why they would 
they can avoid not um, boiling off the fuel is that if the fuel, I mean, as the fuel gets hotter and hotter, it's just going to spin its own turbine faster and faster, which will pump more and more fuel in there. So it doesn't mm-hmm. have the opportunity to heat up too much. I think the issue, if anything, is, yeah, they might run out of fuel, but I don't think that the heat shield will, you know, like overheat. I don't think that'll happen, um, provided that everything else functions correctly. Yeah, I feel like that is a corollary of this is that they have to have out of whack uh, size uh, fuel versus oxidizer tanks than they would otherwise. But that's that's cool. And and I guess one thing also, I, 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 I didn't think I heard during the video, but I, I kind of jumped around the second time. The fact that it's open cycle means that when they're just cooling the shield on re-entry, that they're going to have some thrust slowing them down because um, <laughs> that heated fuel needs to get dumped out the side. So even if it's a small thing, but I mean, it's it's some... Uh, it's some help, I guess, right? Yeah, be it'll, it'll be interesting <laughs> to see how much purple, like if they actually design that exhaust port in such a way that they do get a little bit of, of propulsion out of it. Because uh, on the one hand, that could be good. On the other hand, it has to be off center or they have to have multiple exhaust ports. And if it's off center, you know, you could wind up tipping your rocket. If you, you know, if you balance everything, that off center thrust might be a good thing but that's true right because yeah they don't have one they wouldn't have one for each of the chambers combustion chambers that they have right you'd have one for the turbo pump which is already off center so you know pushing a little harder on that side might be a good thing but i i think that the amount of thrust that they'll get out of that uh exhaust is nothing just paltry compared to the the additional uh ballistic uh, mass that's on on that side of the vehicle, but yeah, who knows? Because because open cycles, you know that that extra thrust you get, it's not nothing, but that's also one per engine, <laughs> typically. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. This is yeah, different, and, and that's also when you're going up as opposed right. to going down. Yeah, one one per engine, but also one per combustion chamber for the most part. And this is yeah, yeah. very different thing. So um, Stoke Space uh, kind of talks about this as the integrated propellants concept that is being used by uh, Vulcan's upper stage. Um, of course, with Vulcan, the integrated propellant is the main engine and the RCS engines are all using the same fuel and the the power generators are using the same fuel. But like it's, it's they kind of, the way that they talk about it feels kind of similar. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and flag this as an integrated propellant uh, system in my head. And so they, they say that by you know, using this quote unquote integrated propellants, my term, um, that they are kind they're making up for the potential fuel deficit that you encounter by dumping a lot of it overboard for cooling. Um, and, uh, Andy in particular called it uh, drag on mass. Um, you have the same propellant engines that take you up, have you bring you back down. Um, so it, um, they're seeing, I mean, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just kind of like saying one plus one equals two. Like that means that you have less mass spent on disposable things. Um, and you know, that they're confident that this is a, a big enough pro and yeah, it, it very well could be like without having the math in front of us, like this, this seems like this should balance to me. Once they do an orbital test and bring it back, that'll be the real proof. And that'll be just mind blowing to me because uh, no one's done that yet, have they? Yeah, n- no one. <laughs> Not even SpaceX. But I can't imagine that they'll, they'll be able to fly this to orbit before Starship does. So it no, takes a little bit of the bang out. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it seems like it's easier to bring a second stage back if it's bigger. But when it's right. something that's this small, mm. that's tricky. You know, mm-hmm. That's the cool part. <laughs> the fact that it's small. 
Okay, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Dennis, what is he first? First up, NASA announces $1 billion deorbit tug for ISS. After releasing its 2024 budget proposal, NASA provided additional details, which included plans for a propulsion module to deorbit the ISS. Kathy Leaders, Associate Administrator for Space Operations, stated in a media teleconference that $180 million was initially requested for the space tug, with total costs estimated to be just shy of $1 billion. While earlier plans involved using a docked progress spacecraft to deorbit the space station, the agency concluded that an additional dedicated spacecraft could provide more capability. And then next up, Virgin Orbit's operational pause. The launch vehicle company Virgin Orbit, which suffered a failure on its first mission from a UK spaceport earlier this year, announced that it is pausing operations and furloughing staff. The company has been facing financial challenges, reporting $71 million of cash on hand and an operating loss of $15.5 million at the end of the third quarter of 2022. Representatives of Virgin Orbit missed an appearance at a panel during the recent Satellite 2023 conference without an explanation. The company has stated that it is currently conducting discussions with potential funding sources and exploring strategic opportunities. All right. And finally, Axiom reveals the Artemis EVA suit. A decade after NASA revealed the Buzz Lightyear lookalike Z1 suit, prototyped by ILC Dover, a suit that's actually quite likely to make it to the moon was revealed this week by Axiom Space. An event was held at Space Center Houston where a prototype was modeled on stage. Though an aluminum cane was required as an assistive device, the suit appeared relatively comfortable and maneuverable. Axiom and Collins Aerospace were both awarded XEVA's contracts back in September. Not much has been disclosed about this new rear entry suit, but the source selection statement discusses relative advantages. Axiom suit can support more EVAs per mission and shares many parts with their zero-G suit headed to ISS. The Collins suit is slimmer, lighter, and can be stored for a longer period of time. So moving along to this week in spaceflight history, we have two winners, uh, the Greek and Hydrak, and that's it. Uh, so my clue was a little bit harder than I thought. Uh, the clue was, it's fine. It's in what we call a storage orbit or quote unquote, a storage orbit. And I can see how that was a tricky clue, maybe trickier than I would have liked. But uh, anyway, we got some correct <laughs> answers, so whatever. And so this week in spaceflight history was the 24th of March, 2006. It was the first launch of Falcon 1. So if you remember, I think I covered, I don't know how long ago, the first successful launch of a Falcon 1. Mm. Uh, so this is like the prequel to that. And it's very similar, I think. <laughs> and it's similar in that I took a lot of this information from the great book by Eric Berger, Liftoff, which I still highly recommend. That was my probably, or I don't know, that was at least half of my reference here. So basically at this point, SpaceX needed a customer for their first flight. Um, although I suppose they could have gone without one, um, but it helps if you have somebody paying for a payload. And DARPA was a big fan. And I didn't realize this. They were a pretty big fan of SpaceX pretty early on. Um, and it kind of makes sense. And so they actually wanted to kind of like sponsor the first flight. And so they purchased a ride for FalconSat. And that is the payload. Uh, and that comes into the clue, which I'll get to a little later on. They wanted to use FalconSat too, because it was not like an important national defense asset. Uh, so this is something that could afford to be lost. Um, FalconSat is kind of interesting. Um, it was built by the Air Force Academy for a budget of $75,000. So like not like a big satellite. It's about 19.5 kilograms. And it was designed to study the effects of plasma on communication with spacecraft. And so I'm not too familiar with this, um, but it had uh, an instrument called MESA, which was a the miniature electrostatic analyzer, and that investigates morphology of plasma depletion in the ionosphere. 
and that affects like GPS and satellite communication. I don't know what that means, plasma depletion, except that it means that there's less of it. It seems I, I did look at one paper on it and it looks like um, there's just, you know, this very like uneven distribution of how plasma charged the ionosphere is, you know, in certain mm-hmm. parts of the world. And that can, of course, affect communications because that's what plasma does. But uh, that was the idea. And I guess like a spoiler alert that never, you know, it never got <laughs> to perform that function. I can tell you what a plasma depletion is, though. So when they say morphology, right, we're talking about shape. Um, a, the plasma depletion is actually the electromagnetic wake left by a satellite. So they're looking at the area of low plasma c- concentration, like this region in a, in a wake behind the satellite. But there are satellites that look at the entirety of the ionosphere, not just what a spacecraft leaves in its wake. Definitely, yeah, could be. Yeah, no, I think based on what I just Googled, <laughs> I could tie everybody's together because we're oh, all great. right. <laughs> uh, right, the whole elephant touching its leg versus its tail and its nose, etc. But yeah, no, I think, I think it is just uh, any deficit in, in the amount of you know plasma in a given location. And so that can happen... Uh, for a number of different ways, including the wakes behind spacecraft, but also the Tonga eruption created a large ionospheric depletion. And so hmm. um, you can, yeah, basically that's that's the idea is that it's, it's a, the shape of the deficit in, in the ionosphere. Okay. Yeah. So another interesting fact is that it was originally slated to launch on STS-114 back in 2003. But shortly after that, as we all know, the Columbia tragedy happened and that's when all like shuttle flights were halted and NASA made a decision to end the low cost satellite payloads. And this was obviously a very low cost satellite. So uh, I guess it just wasn't prioritized and they kind of, you know, had done away with all of the smaller types of payloads and uh, they had kind of, you know, refocused on the bigger things. So uh, so let's talk about the prior launch attempts uh, of the Falcon 1. So, uh, and I didn't know this, um, but the first launch attempts were actually made for Vandenberg or that they were scheduled to be launched from Vandenberg. And that means that they even built their own little um, launch pad there. And I didn't know about any of this, that they had an entire launch pad set up and everything. It was called Slick 3 West. So that was the actual name of the launch pad there at the Air Force Base. I don't know if it's still there or if it's you know, where they launched Falcon 9s from now, perhaps, but they couldn't launch from there. And despite the fact that they had built a whole launch pad, uh, they actually finally, due to a conflict with a Titan IV launch, uh, they were just moved to Kwajalein Atoll, uh, which, as we all know, is where, you know, these tests were all done, uh, specifically the Reagan test site, which was on that little atoll. And so from there, three launch attempts were made over several months. The penultimate launch attempt, which I want to point out, uh, was made on the 19th of December 2005, uh, but there was a fuel offloading issue, which caused the first stage fuel tank to buckle. So they didn't properly repressurize the tank as they were taking out the fuel and the whole thing kind of, you know, caved in. So that was a big problem. Um, And since this happened on December 19th, the staff there, they wanted to get the last flight back to the mainland for Christmas because that's kind of the whole, like you have to imagine, and I kind of covered this the last time that I talked about the uh, the successful launch of Falcon 1. Uh, this is a very rough environment. There's nothing out there. There's very little to do. Uh, you, you don't want to get stuck out on this little atoll. And there's like two flights like every week to Honolulu, I think. And that's your only way off the island. And uh, they wanted to get, you know, the last one that they could. So what they did was they just left the rocket on the pad. 
<laughs> um, <laughs> and that's important. That's an important thing to keep in mind. And the rocket was not rolled back into its hangar, which was also not climate controlled. So it was basically just about as exposed to the elements as being outside, except for a little bit less salt spray. Um, that didn't happen until the 20th of January. So it sat out on this launch pad about 100 meters from the ocean for a month. Um, so if you see where something might go wrong, just from that information, yeah, you wouldn't be wrong. Um, so the actual launch date was on the 24th of March at 10.30 a.m. local time. And as soon as the rocket lifted off from the pad, they noticed that the engine was on fire. Uh, according to the book liftoff, Tom Muller specifically saw this, and he had hoped that maybe it would just go out as they got to higher altitudes before it did any real damage. Um, but that didn't happen. So at T plus 30 seconds, pneumatic pressure was lost, and that caused the locks and RP-1 pre-valves to close, just cut off the fuel. And the thrust was terminated, and the rocket crashed back down onto the island, um, and it hit a dead reef just east of Omelette island um, and that's the little island on the atoll that they were launching from so the falcon 2 satellite somehow miraculously became detached from the upper stage and it crashed completely intact through the roof of the machine shop slash storage shed just a few feet from its own shipping container now maybe the clue wasn't the best because i've read a couple articles that call it a storage shed and then i also read in the book it was called a machine shop and my guess is that it was a storage shed that was converted to a machine shop that's kind of how i square that and i wouldn't mm. be surprised because that's kind of how things worked out on this little island um stuff was very makeshift uh, so maybe that's where the discrepancy comes from assuming that you are correct about about it originally being a storage set it is a very good clue <laughs> so i think i think we can forgive any uh ambiguity in whether or not it's a correct clue okay thanks yeah yeah i was kind of uh, worried that it was a little bit too obscure and and, per and perhaps not factually accurate when have we ever cared about facts on this show yeah facts they do get in the way of a good story huh or a good twist if... <laughs> so um yeah the falcon 2 said if you like if anyone wants to see it you can see it at the air force academy museum and uh the smithsonian they originally wanted to put it in the smithsonian museum but somebody at the air force academy thought that it would serve better as a teaching tool but yeah it's that's kind of cool that it does sit in some kind of a museum and just think about how badass you must feel as the students that built that satellite mm. that not only was it on you know a falcon one given at where spacex has gone since then and to still have it survive a uh uncontrolled re-entry yeah uncontrolled re-entry through a roof <laughs> but um but make a plaque for it and just like label it shed destroyer have a great mission patch <laughs> yeah so they put off recovery efforts until the following morning, and this is kind of cool. So about 100 local non-military residents, they all helped with the recovery. So they kind of, you know, all banded together, and they helped take it out of the ocean. Um, and like literally people were doing these dives just off the coast and coming up with bits of the rocket. Like it had just kind of scattered everywhere. But uh, they took all those pieces in, they laid them out in the integration hangar to try and piece back exactly what went wrong. And they found out pretty quickly what had caused this engine fire. So there was a fuel leak which had occurred at the top of the main engine. And that leak actually began six seconds before liftoff, which I assume is when, you know, the fuel was being circulated through the system. And then it had ignited at the engine start. Uh, so the conclusion, or at least the first conclusion, and this is mostly what Musk was saying, um, and this actually caused a lot of 
uh, I guess, tension or bad blood between him and the people working on the island because they were already pretty overworked and stressed. And now he was like blaming them specifically. Well, they knew or they were pretty confident that it was because of a loose bee nut. And I had mentioned this, I think, in the last time that I had covered the successful Falcon 1 launch. He had claimed that the that this little nut was not properly tightened. Uh, so he's basically blaming the workers, uh, and they said, no, that was not the case. And once the debris was recovered, they found that the locking wire was still in place. So that little B-nut was being held in place. Uh, but basically, this is what joins a fuel line to a fuel sensor, and that had indeed come off, or it didn't come off, it had actually corroded. But the reason why he had suspected that it had not been properly fastened was because it had been taken off repeatedly in order to replace certain parts or get access to like electrical components that were in the avionics system, and that's all up there near the engine. And in fact, just a couple of weeks prior to that, it had been removed to access an igniter valve that needed to be rewired. So uh, yeah, this thing is constantly coming off and going back on, and of course you have to replace the lock wire as well. So if, you know, some step is ignored, and that's totally possible, like given how slapdash things were uh, back then, and that's a whole other chapter. Um, This is the event that actually changed how things were done at SpaceX, actually, because this is when Elon Musk kind of realized, okay, we can't rush that quickly. We kind of have to make sure that we're making, you know, proper documentation and taking the proper steps. But yeah, the actual cause of the leak was corrosion to the B-nut. And again, that had actually connected these plumbing lines. And so DARPA, in their report, because they did an investigation, uh, the conclusion was a failure of the aluminum nut on on the fuel pump inlet pressure transducer due to what's called um, intergranular corrosion cracking. So it sounds like, I guess, maybe like the very threads of the nut perhaps started to kind of maybe like, dis- you know, disintegrate a little bit. This was caused by sea salt spray, which is not surprising since the rocket had stood out exposed to the elements for a full month. So just a corroded B-nut brought the whole thing down. And what's also interesting is that Musk and Muller and Chris Thompson, who is the VP of Structures, they had all discussed this particular part quite extensively. And they reasoned that these types of aluminum nuts are used on rockets all the time, and they don't seem to have a problem. And Thompson, who is a former Marine Corps helicopter pilot and I believe also crew chief, uh, he said that they use these same types of aluminum nuts on their helicopters, and these helicopters are on aircraft carriers, and you know they're exposed to sea salt spray too. They don't seem to have any problems, so how bad could this really be? Uh, that convinced Musk to go with the aluminum nut as opposed to stainless steel because it weighed just one-third the mass. So it was in order to save mass because obviously that counts when you're launching a rocket, like every little bit helps. And that was a decision to go with aluminum, despite the fact that it does corrode much more easily than stainless steel. So do you, do you know why like marine helicopters don't suffer these kind of issues? Is it because they do more maintenance, like more regularly? And like when, when a helicopter does experience the kind of, you know, sea air that this thing did, that it's then like they start replacing parts or what? Like my suspicion is that one, it might not be like in a place that's exposed to the elements plus or as exposed at least. Right. Yeah. yeah. And plus um, the next little bit of information. And I think this might answer that question is that the engineers knew about this corrosion possibility. So they had applied what's called ACF 50, which is a type of anti-corrosion lubricant to the rocket, but they kind of skipped over that one little nut. They hadn't been thorough enough with uh, their application. And uh, they're thinking that that's what led to 
this happening. So so all this time, it sounded like it was definitely a design issue, but it actually might be like a people issue, like a maintenance issue. That's kind of crazy. Kind of both. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, it seems that at least a nut in that spot, that important too, uh, you might want to go with something a, a little bit more robust. Yeah. Maybe don't make them all aluminum. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Like that one, let's make that one stainless steel. You don't have to do them all that way. One cool fact is that, um, you know, it's mentioned in the audio book because uh, I was listening to the audio version um, that this little nut just cost five bucks um, and it brought down this rocket. And so I thought it would be fun to look up ACF 50, the anti-corrosion <laughs> lubricant, and you can buy a can of that on Amazon for $24. So like really, you know, these two things, had you done this right, you would have saved a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like a Visa commercial, right? Like, you know, a stainless steel B-nut, $10. Uh, ACF 50, $25. The knowledge how to use each one, priceless. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but they didn't quite know at that time. But um, and in fact, um, Musk had also proposed possible galvanic corrosion. So this is not sea salt corrosion, but rather a chemical reaction between the aluminum nut and the stainless steel pipe fitting. So maybe that also could have contributed to this happening. Just kind of makes you think about like all the various ways in which things can corrode. Yeah. So anyway, um, in conclusion, they did actually replace that nut with a stainless steel one, which was a Good decision. Yes, it weighs three times as much, but I think that's totally worth it. <laughs> three times as much for a for a two gram part. You know, it's only when you yeah. have hundreds of those parts that it really makes a difference. Yeah. The sad thing about this is that post-flight analysis, they found out that the flight would have failed anyway, because in addition to that oversight, um, during the prep for launch, um, a second stage LOX tank valve was open to allow for easier venting, but it was never closed. And so the second stage would not have been able to properly pressurize once it came on. So yeah, not good. Uh, and Musk, he had asked why the valve being open was not detected by sensors. And the team responded that they just didn't have any sensors installed because they didn't have time to install them. And that was really the point at which he realized they need to slow down, make sure they installed the proper sensors. And indeed on the second flight, they did have those sensors there and they started doing better documentation because that was a big thing too. They weren't documenting uh, the parts and the, you know, the changes that were being made. They didn't have serial numbers or anything. And I think that we had uh. talked about that prior, that that's just how they operated. And so that was something that needed to change. And I thought one final quote was from Hans Kandigsman. Uh He said that, honestly, we just did stupid things, uh, <laughs> which I thought was a good way of summing it all up. Um, looking back, uh, he said that he doesn't know how they ever did what they did, uh, that they you know launched uh, the Falcon 1 because it was just a very – difficult environment and they really weren't being careful. They were just kind of going as fast as they could. So yeah, anyway, that's your This Week in Spaceflight History, uh, sponsored by uh, Liftoff by by Eric Berger. <laughs> Great, David. Thank you. That that was a really good... Uh, that was an, I feel like every single time we do this, we congratulate each other, which is like a little self-serving considering that we all work <laughs> on the same project. Um, but I did like that one. Uh, next week is going to be the 28th of March through the 3rd of April. Dennis, do you have a clue for us? Yes. Next week in 1993, low power mode. Okay. Don't know. <laughs> no, I, I had to kind of go to the bottom of the barrel for this one. There were no events, and so I had to start grabbing stuff off the World Wide Web for this range. But 
I think it's interesting. Does it, it certainly does it involve a shed of some kind? I wish not all mm-hmm. of our twists can be that great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, if you think you know what this clue is in reference to, send us your guess. Uh, email us or shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. So uh, let's move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. We got five launches and one other event. All right. First up is The Beat Goes On. Uh, this is a Rocket Lab Electron uh, flight. Uh, We talked about it last week, I believe. There are two uh, black sky Earth observation satellites. Um, It is going to be flying Wednesday, March 22nd at 0545 hours UTC. And up next is another uh, returning guest. Uh, Mm. Although this one, I think we've talked about for four weeks now. Multiply returning. So, yeah, multiply returning. And this is Relativity Space's Terran 1. Uh, making another uh, go at their first flight. And so trying to get to orbit. And uh, yeah, there's no payload on board, but if I remember correctly, they do have, I think, the first piece of 3D printed metal that they uh, had printed, and that's going to be sitting up there, I guess, uh, (laughs) in the rocket. And so, yeah, so this will be flying out of the Cape, Launch Complex 16, going to LEO, and it has a launch window on Thursday, March 23rd from 0200 UTC to 0500 UTC. Good luck. And have fun, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the comedic timing. And after that, on March 23rd, is the launch of a Soyuz 2-1V. And that's launching with a Volga upper stage. And is taking a EOMKA number four, which is a reconnaissance satellite of unknown purposes, it says. So uh, possibly something similar to Cosmos 2551, uh, 2555 and 2560, which I guess are those spy satellites. Um, maybe are those, is that what the cosmos? So I checked ahead of time. Those aren't the snoopers that we talked about recently, but, um, yeah, yeah. they're going to a sun synchronous orbit. So I, I guess not. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're military comm ones. So the launch time for that sometime between 0600, uh, UTC through 0800, uh, don't know exactly when yet. Um, it's launching from police cosmodrome from 43 R, which I guess is the launch pad. Anyway, can't watch that probably, so don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> so skip it. After that is Starlink Group 5-5 um, launching on a Falcon 9. That's going to be going up Friday, March 24th at 1533 hours UTC out of uh, Cape Canaveral because that's not, that's not unambiguous. And then always fun to see, uh, I think, one of the finest looking rockets out there, uh, ISRO's GSLV Mark III. And so this one is going to be taking a batch of 36 OneWeb satellites, in particular the OneWeb 18, uh, taking them to a polar orbit. And yeah, like GSLVs tend to do, it will be launching at a Sierra Cahota uh, in the uh, southeastern, you know, coast of uh, India. And this launch has an instantaneous window on Sunday, March 26 at 0330 UTC. After that, on the 28th, you can watch coverage of the undocking of the uncrewed Soyuz MS-22. Yeah, this is the uh, leaky one, right? One of the leaky ones. You got to be more specific than that. Oh, that's true. There's multiple (laughs) ones. Um, So the coverage for this begins at 5.30 a.m. Eastern time, and the undocking is scheduled for 5.52, and uh, it will be landing, hopefully, in Kazakhstan. 
uh, and is scheduled to touch down at 7.42 a.m. Eastern Time. But uh, yeah, the event itself will not be carried on NASA TV, actually. So, But updates will be posted on the International Space Station blog. So I guess that's how you can find out how reentry is progressing. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And that means it's time to do over the show. So we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Ian, Jonesy, Chris, a.k.a. Stig Garfield, Leon Running Man, The Greek, and Max Headroom for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction errors on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you. Thank you.